You're listening to the Domecast, where news and observer journalists take a look back and forward in North Carolina politics. Welcome to another edition of the Domecast here uh, at the News and Observer offices. We're uh, uh, speaking on uh, on a Wednesday, a little earlier in the week than we usually do, uh, because we because of our abbreviated uh, version on Friday from the legislative building. Uh, now we're uh, we've had some time to think about what the legislative session. Uh, meant and what lawmakers did during their uh, 68 days, I believe, uh, there. And I'm here with uh, Lynn Bonner, Colin Campbell, and Will Doran to talk about it. We may be joined by Craig Jarvis later. Uh, so let's start with uh, kind of the big picture. Um, Lynn, what do you think the uh, the leg- what was the most notable part of session for you? What did what did the legislature accomplish this time? Well, I think the big headlines uh, come from the budget and uh, the teacher and state employee raises. Um, It gives uh, McCrory a head of steam going into the elections, um, saying he got, or the legislature actually um, gave him uh, somewhat bigger teacher raises to run on than he originally requested. Was it, is it bigger or smaller? Or slightly smaller, I guess. He was averaging five percent. They got to four point seven. He wanted it over fifty thousand, and that's what they they hit that mark right, at least. Yeah. So um, he's got that, and, and uh, the state employees got some money, and there's um, a cola bonus, so um, he can go into the um, into the election season, say talking about um, increases for teachers and state employees. I think that's the the biggest thing out of out of the session. Um, there was also a lot of talk about HB uh, two going into the session. They made in the last um, in the waning minutes of the session, the waning hours, made a small modification to it that uh, didn't satisfy outright opponents uh, of HB two that were pushing for repeal. Um, so that's going to be also a threat in, in the elections. But also it was something, the modification they made was something that McCrory asked for. So, yeah. Right. Colin, you followed uh, HB 2 changes in the in the final days. Uh, what, what did they end up doing on HB 2, and why did they uh, punt on the rest of it? Well, it ended up being really minor once they finally got around to doing it, and this was uh, late, late Friday night. I mean, this is, this is the classic, if you don't want something to make big news, do it at... 10 p.m. I guess on on Friday night before a holiday weekend and uh, it won't make a whole lot of sound on that's what they did with this Uh, they decided just to do the lawsuit provision the uh, provision in HB 2 that said that you couldn't file uh, a workplace discrimination lawsuit in a state court that you had to go through federal court system uh, which is a lot harder Uh, so that was the one thing they changed and that's something that Governor McCrory had been pushing for for probably several months now Um, but there had been a much more sweeping change uh, not entirely uh, on the the bathroom provision because that was mostly uh, agreed that that was going to stay but we had these draft bills circulating around people kept leaking it to the media in different forms uh, and most of the draft provisions sort of centered on this idea that 
the state was going to issue uh, gender identification cards to uh, transgender people. So if they've had the gender reassignment surgery, uh, they could, I guess, get their doctor's note to the government. The government could issue them a card to say, you are legitimately a woman now. You can go to the women's restroom. Um, and that was sort of roundly ridiculed by um opponents of HB2 as being sort of similar to the uh, types of ID cards you would give minorities in certain societies where you were trying to persecute them. Um, so that was uh, sort of the, the reaction to that. Um, there was also some provisions in there toughening penalties for people who commit uh, sex crimes of various sorts in, in bathrooms. So things that would be uh, a low-level misdemeanor outside a bathroom, an indecent exposure or something would be higher level that occurred during, in a bathroom, all of that uh, apparently could not get enough agreement. Uh, there were a bunch of uh, caucus meetings, including one where the governor actually showed up, but all of that uh, came to nothing, uh, as best we can tell, because the Republicans didn't have enough votes among their caucus to do it uh, with Republicans alone, so they had to have this uh, push to Democrats, which is why you saw a bunch of Senate Democrats trooping down to the uh, governor's mansion last week to, to meet with the governor, presumably to try to get their support uh, for the HB2 changes. The Democrats were not willing to go for it. Ultimately, it's kind of a uh, political no-win situation. And, you, know, you don't want to be, if you're a Democrat, seen as uh, supporting a sort of half-hearted change to HB2. If you're a Republican, you don't want to be seen as changing it at all because your base is supportive of the law. Um, so in, in the end, there just wasn't the support to do anything more than the lawsuit provision. And so that's that's all they did. And even that was with a, a statute of limitations shorter than what was uh, on the books prior to HB2. All that with like 10 minutes of debate, I think, at the, the last hours of the legislative session. And there seemed to be some momentum building for some of those bigger changes. And then uh, and it all seemed to be around the, the NBA uh, pulling the All-Star game out of Charlotte and then that kind of fizzled when the NBA, uh, or at least the Hornets, uh, made a statement that indicated they weren't on board with, with the changes that were, were under consideration. Did that play a big role in it being dropped, or was it really not much of a uh, was it really not a thing at all to begin with? Yeah, well, House Speaker Tim Moore, uh, I think, said, told reporters at one point that he hadn't heard specific requests from the NBA. He'd heard concerns from them. He was aware that uh, whatever bill they were going to consider was probably not going to be enough to satisfy those concerns. Um, but it did seem like that took some of the wind out of the sails once the NBA came out and said, uh, we've seen your draft legislation, what you're proposing, and that's not going to cut it for uh, what we'd like to see. Um, I think at that point, um, the, the impetus to try to sort of compromise on principles about this and, and go for some sort of compromise just to get something done sort of went away because uh, the sense was that uh, if HB2 has cost the state the all-star game, uh, nothing that they were considering doing was going to fix that, that that's going to be a done deal unless they repeal the whole thing. Uh, what do you guys think the that lawmakers will be uh, touting on the campaign trail? Lynn mentioned uh, salaries, uh, teacher pay, state employee pay. Um, there's also uh, provisions to uh, cut income taxes by reducing the standard deduction. And then there's this plan to uh, lower and fix tuition. So basically, uh, there would be a guarantee for people in the UNC system that their tuition would not go up over the four years that uh, they study there. And then at certain schools, UNC Pembroke, Western Carolina University in Cullowee, uh, Elizabeth City State University, 
you would actually have lowered tuition, $500 tuition. And that was controversial at one point when it was mostly focused on the historically black universities. But uh, it did end up, end up being stuck in the budget and, uh, and passing. Um, is there anything else that you think will get uh, argued about uh, on the campaign trail? Uh, uh, what, what do you think we'll, we'll be talking about in the months ahead out of, out of this session? Um, I guess, Lynn. And so, I, th I think we hit them all. Um, what was significant for me um, in this session was um, sort of how the legislature treated local districts. You know, the last um, the last day, the uh, appeals court overthrew the redrawing of the Wake districts. Um, in wait, uh, the dis the county commissioners and the school board. Uh, also, in the last day, the house um, uh, defeated a a plan by Senator Apodaca to redraw um, uh, Asheville districts. So I think that's something that's going to be motivating um, the cities as we uh, go into the into the election season. Uh, what's happening to um, what's happening to cities under uh, the legislature? Uh, and I want to get to what the legislature didn't do, some of the things that they didn't make it to. But uh, first, I, w I would like to uh, ask Will Dorn about some of the thi one thing they did do, which is pass a bill uh, regulating the disclosure of footage from body cams. Uh, you did a fact check on this this week, and I think the claim was that this was going to uh, make it even harder to get some of this footage, make make this footage less transparent. So, what did they what did they actually do on body cams? Because some of it was uh, uh, some of that that legislation was a little confusing, and you explained it well in your uh, in your fact check piece. Yes, well, thank you. Um, and uh, like you said, the the statement that we fact checked was from the ACLU, um, saying that the law would give police broad authority to keep footage secret. Um, including even from people who are themselves in the footage. Um, and we ruled that true. Um, and it, it's important to note that before this law passed, there was no really statewide standard on dash cam footage, body cam footage, really any sort of video that police produce. Obviously, 911 calls are public records and, you know, arrest reports are public records, but there was nothing... Um, there's no standard for videos. So this has made a standard that says that they are not public records. And, you know, I don't think the the true rating that we gave to that was really surprising to anyone. I think the, you know, the title of the bill was like an act to make police body cams not be public records. So, um, but yeah, basically now, um, you know, if, if you just want to even look at footage, um, not even get a copy of it or make it public, just be able to view it once at, you know, the police office or wherever. Um, you have to be either someone who is in the footage or their representative, like a legal guardian or a lawyer. Um, and even in that case, the police have many options to deny you, um, whether it's just because they think maybe the footage is too sensitive or might hurt someone's reputation, or if they think that there are more serious reasons to deny you, say, um, you know, uh, Maybe there's someone in the footage who was a police informant and you're a gang member and you want to see the footage so that you can figure out who the informant was. They can, you know, suspect that maybe that's your intention and deny you. So, you know, I'm, 
this isn't to make a you know a value judgment on you know the secrecy. I'm sure some cases will be valid, and some cases might not be valid. Um, but yes, it, it is definitely true that the police have a very broad authority to keep this kind of footage secret now. Um, and even for in terms of the more wider disclosure of footage, you know, um, you know that you would be able to you know put it on the TV news or use it as evidence in a court case, things like that. Um, the police don't have any authority over that. That's up to a judge. Um, but the police are able, or actually the judge is required, to tell the police any time that he is making a decision on this footage that he is doing that, and he's required to let them testify, and you know, presumably in most cases to say why they think it should not be released. And uh, it's still the bill's going to the governor to uh, be signed, so we don't know what he'll do yet. Um, don't know if you have any idea if there's any indication that uh, that he might uh, veto it, but it passed pretty overwhelmingly in in the legislature, right? Yes, it did. It had very wide support in the legislature, um, and part of that was because the the body cam provision wasn't the only part of the law. Um, at the end, they also tacked on um, a, a needle sharing program that I think had a lot of support from some of the more um, progressive members of uh, of the legislature. And I didn't I didn't really look into that part as much. I focused mostly on the body cams, but I, you know, I. I believe that probably helped uh, get some support from, you know, from both parties. I will jump in and add that the it, it helped them with Democrats, but it actually I think it lost a couple votes on the Republican side because uh, some of the I think farthest to the right wing Republicans in the House, uh, uh, Larry Pittman I think was the most notable who spoke uh, said he was opposed to a needle exchange uh, program because he didn't want the government to be involved in sort of sponsoring uh, in any way, shape, or form people with drug addiction or, or enabling them to, to be involved in that activity. So uh, he sort of treated that as like, a, I guess, a nanny state provision and, and wanted to, to drop that from the bill. But ultimately, that uh, may have helped it sail through with, with Democrats. And certainly, it was interesting to see the um, Republicans in the House uh, and, and Senate back this kind of uh, program that you uh, don't often see from, from conservatives just because it does have so many uh, implications for, for drug use. Yeah, and more liberal Democrats have been trying to get a needle exchange uh, program in the state for years. Uh, the uh, They couldn't get it even under uh, Democratic control when sort of the more centrist Democrats were in charge. Um, but now apparently they, they've given uh, at least the opportunity for groups to to do these programs, although they won't be able to use public money to pay for the actual syringes themselves. But I guess presumably they could use the money to they could use money uh, from local governments to or federal money to pay for um, the, the programs, the, the staff that run them. There's no state money here, so I, I don't know whether that'll be a, a big obstacle for them to actually run needle exchange programs. Um, so what do we uh, what was the most notable or surprising uh, thing that the legislature didn't do uh, this session, um, Lynn. What what uh, what got left behind? Lots of things got left behind. Um, this was the first session I can remember when the when one of the chambers didn't finish off all their bills. I mean, they left bills on the calendar as time was ticking down. Um, and at one point, uh, there were all of these, there were a lot of retiring members. There were lots of calls for personal p- privilege and people making speeches. And as uh, we were nearing midnight um, and um, the session was in danger, the House session was in danger of going over, 
uh, the speaker said, okay, you can have a point of personal privilege, but only talk for a minute because essentially we got to get out of here. Um, but uh, this year there was no um, regulatory reform bill. I guess there were at least three floating around um, that they couldn't entirely reconcile. Um, so there were no votes there. Something they left on the calendar was um, a teacher background check bill um, that – was something everybody said that they wanted, but uh, toward the end, there were people attaching tons of amendments to them and taking them off, and they just didn't have time to vote, debate, and vote on it. So that was that was left until maybe next year. Um, also, a lot of things that we don't know if the House was really serious about doing, you know, constitutional amendments that never never even got a, a committee hearing in the House. Um, the uh, wind farm map never came up in the House at all. So, um, yeah, they just left a lot uh, when the when the last gavel fell. This, was it the Senate that wanted to do uh, the, the to go back to the old way of doing math classes that basically... Yes, yeah, yeah. the Senate had uh, the bill uh, on two, uh, two math tracks in high school, the um, integrated math that uh, they've been hearing a lot of complaints about and going back to the traditional um, two algebra classes, one geometry class that came out of the house um, and there were conferees appointed and that's the last we heard. There was never a conference reporter. Uh, that just kind of went into the ether. So um, so that's gone. Yeah. Anything else uh Notable that that fell by the wayside in the final days. From yeah, so I was uh, kind of surprised to see the lead testing bill uh, disappear. That was the one that was going to require uh, schools that were over a certain age, as well as childcare facilities, to uh, conduct testing for lead in the water. Uh, that seemed like something that uh, was going to have a lot of support. Uh, went through the House pretty easily. Um, and uh, certainly in the wake of the, the Flint, Michigan water crisis, so something that would uh, uh, be a good headline to, to campaign on. But in the end, what ended up happening, as I understand it, was uh, in the House, there were a couple of amendments related to the Charlotte uh, Whitewater Park that had the uh, brain-eating amoeba that killed someone. Um, and so there's a push down in Charlotte to do some new regulations uh, for that type of facility to, I guess, ensure that that sort of problem doesn't occur again. Those were tacked onto the bill uh, in amendments in the House, but there were some concerns about those uh, provisions in the Senate that that might be um, not the right way to handle regulating these whitewater facilities. I think there had been some concerns from one of the state, like the state health directors, about it. Uh, so that ended up resulting in the Senate not taking up that bill and not taking a vote on that. I was also surprised to see the uh, trifecta of constitutional amendments uh, not. Uh, make its way through the House. It uh, easily cleared the Senate. That was uh, House Bill 3, the constitutional amendment to cap income taxes at 5.5% to limit eminent domain and to uh, put in the Constitution that we really support the right to hunt and fish because apparently that's under threat. Um, But that did not get anywhere in the House. Um, I kind of wonder if that wasn't a bargaining chip somewhere near the end that uh, fell through because uh, of other bargaining chips popping up. It was one of the interesting parts about the, the last day of session was the uh, degree of honesty among uh, the leadership about 
uh, how many of these bills they were taking up because the other chamber was not going to take up their bill if they didn't. The Asheville elections bill that Senator Tom Apodaca was pushing in his uh, final days as the Senate Rules Chairman apparently was a, a pawn in those negotiations, only taken up by the House after something else had moved in the Senate or something else was agreed to. We don't know exactly what. Uh, and even then, there was uh, enough of a revolt among uh, House members and House Republicans that uh, that went down in flames after probably one of the most heated debates I've heard in the legislature in a long time. Uh, so it's, it was interesting that uh, some of the Senate's priorities uh, didn't make it through the House and, and vice versa uh, in those last few days, in part not because there was necessarily um, opposition to some of the provisions. Sometimes it says there were, uh, but sometimes it was just, uh, well, you didn't do what I you told me you would do or you, I didn't get my way, so you're not going to get your bill. Will, anything you were uh, you're watching that either didn't go through or uh, not for uh, me? Um, but obviously, I wasn't in you know involved in the in the day to day grind like my colleagues here. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm just you know looking for the facts and <laughs> just the facts, man. Any, <laughs> sometimes that kind of removes you from the process. Though. A lot of facts died in the making of yeah. the yeah. legislation uh, too. We're, we're pretty far away from the facts died. by uh, <laughs> sitting in that legislative building. Yeah. You're, you're better positioned to get the facts back here on McDowell street. <laughs> um, and I don't want to step on headliners of the week, but there were a lot of people saying goodbyes at the legislative building uh, in these, uh, the final days. Uh, anybody who uh, uh, either had a, uh, notable going away speech or, or got roasted by their colleagues or uh, or what I, I suppose Senator Apodaca really did get roasted at the in the by that by the house uh, yeah but not the, in a humorous the house uh, was way. not willing to give him a happy send-off with that uh, Asheville bill and, and he was actually standing I think in the back of the chamber during that probably making some uh, frantic gestures at uh, members of the House Republican caucus but to, to no avail on that uh, he and I think many others got the Longleaf Pine uh, certificate uh, that a lot of people in the state get. I think someone did a survey a couple years ago and found that there have been thousands of these given out. But just about every departing legislator, uh, including uh, some Democrats in the House, got those uh, in their uh, final days in office. Um, probably the best speech, I thought, was uh, actually Leo Daughtry, who uh, is not— uh, I think to the average North Carolinian may not be one of the more high-profile members of the House, but uh, over the, the many years he's served has had a huge amount of influence and, and done a lot of work, particularly on uh, sort of uh, justice and, and public safety issues in particular. Uh, his speech was good because he went on uh, sort of this whole uh, scenario where he's sitting around the, the breakfast table with his wife or he's hanging out with uh, with J.H. Langdon, his uh, cohort from Johnston County, who's also leaving the legislature and that they were going to uh, use all these sort of legislative jargon terms to to keep their addiction alive because they had become so addicted to to being at the legislature they were going to go through withdrawal uh, in their their retirement from from the general assembly so that was a, a fun speech and, and one that's uh, worth going back listening to out of all the the many tearful goodbyes that we heard on the floor in the last couple of days and of course a lot of people who, who get addicted then become lobbyists so they can uh, yeah and, and we hear Apodaca may be becoming a lobbyist I would not be surprised if some of these other people keep up their addictions uh, by becoming lobbyists you can you can keep that addiction and make a whole lot more money that way Lynn anybody you'll be uh, you'll miss quoting uh, who's uh, who's leaving us uh, well um, Paul Stam was also always a pretty good quote I'm sure he's gonna keep us on his email list and we'll be still getting uh, tons of white papers and, and letters and uh, from 
from Skip Stam. It was interesting. Uh, the last day of the session, he was handing out hard copies of a an op-ed that he uh, got published in the NNO. So um, I, I trust that he's still going to be writing and keeping his eye on things. But a lot of uh, speech is thinking, Stam. I guess he... Uh, Toward the end, um, people were talking about how he uh, he mentored them um, in their early in their careers. Uh, so um, there were some sentiments for Stam and and what he's meant to the legislature. Well, uh, I talked to uh, Senator Phil Berger as the session wound down, and he talked a little bit about what he thinks legislators accomplished uh, this session. And really have accomplished uh, since uh, since Republicans took over the General Assembly at the beginning of uh, 2011. They've had six years now to really put their stamp uh, on the state and uh, made some some huge changes over the years. So he talked about some of those, uh, and we'll uh, play some tape of that now as we take a break. We'll come back and talk about uh, the campaign coming to North Carolina, the presidential campaign coming to North Carolina. Stay with us. Uh, our teacher pay um, uh, program is uh, now beginning to uh, uh, to take root. Uh, remember, the first couple of years we were here, we were trying to deal with the mountain of debt uh, that the Democrats had left us in, uh, and didn't have the capacity to do some of the things that we needed to do. But over the past four years, I think if you look at the data. Uh, uh, average teacher pay has grown in North Carolina at a faster rate than any other state. I mean, it's not, it's not we're in the top 20. It's grown faster than any other state over the past four years. And if you take, if you, uh, particularly if you take into account what we're doing this year, uh, I think you see uh, significant growth. Now, we started uh, from, uh, from a lower, uh, a lower level. Uh, but remember that that level we started at is the level that the Democrats left us in, uh, and uh, we we are on course. Uh, this year's budget will get the average teacher pay. Um, teacher pay. It's not total compensation because it doesn't include insurance. It doesn't include the retirement plan. But average teacher pay over fifty thousand uh, dollars, and uh, two years from now that average will be almost fifty five thousand dollars. So uh, we're not quite where we need to be, but we are moving in the right direction. You know, North Carolina is unique uh, among the states in that we have a constitutional provision that says uh, we have an obligation to provide uh, a college education to our citizens as free as practicable. And so uh, by reducing uh, tuition at those three campuses to $500 per semester, I think we put the uh, ability to, uh, uh, to, to work towards a college education uh, within reach for far more people than uh, than, than existed before, uh, and uh, I also think that um, by freezing tuition at the other campuses, what we do is we give parents and we give students uh, some uh, predictability in terms of what college is uh, is going to cost them over a four year period. I think those are good things, and, and I think those are things that um, uh, address uh, some real concerns that uh, that are out there. Why those three schools? Well, one of the reasons uh, is that um, uh, in, in some respects, uh, those three schools uh, actually had uh, capacity uh, that was uh, underutilized. And so we, um, we are, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, we're able to um, help uh, deal with that capacity issue uh, 
Uh, it costs less uh, to uh, to fill slots uh, in an underutilized uh, capacity situation than it would be to build out uh, slots somewhere else. Uh, the other reason is that uh, that they they are in different parts of the state, and so what you do is you provide the opportunity for that access to college education. Uh, to folks a little closer to home. So we've, uh, we've got uh, one campus that's in the northeastern part of the state, another campus that's in the southeastern, south-central part of the state, and a campus that's in the western part of the state. Were you surprised by all the opposition to that, at least at first? Uh, I wouldn't say surprised. I'd say more disappointed uh, in the opposition. Um, uh, and uh, I think it was uh, interested in that um, uh, once uh, that opposition was out there and uh, kind of the pause was put on, uh, in terms of taking some of the uh, the campuses out uh, from the initial proposal, um, each of the campuses that were taken out, we had uh, a similar number of folks come to us and say, "Why did you take it out? We wanted you to uh, to, uh, to to keep it in. Can you put it back in?" I think, in some respects, what we heard was some, sometimes the loudest voices don't necessarily represent a majority, uh, and uh, unfortunately, oftentimes here, the loudest voices don't necessarily represent the best policy. Uh, I think we, uh, I think it's a good policy, uh, and I think uh, the end result is that uh, we were able to save the good policy, notwithstanding the loud voice. All right, we're back on the Domecast. This is Jordan Schrader. Uh, let's talk about the presidential campaign, which uh, increasingly seems like uh, has North Carolina as its ground zero. It's uh, we yesterday we had. Donald Trump in Raleigh, and we had Hillary Clinton and President Obama in Charlotte. Uh, Lynn, what, uh, what, what, what? Do you, well, yeah, I guess we should start with Colin. You were there, so uh, what, uh, uh, what did you take away from Trump's speech? Well, uh, he was mostly focused on um, Hillary Clinton's emails, which we sort of expected given the FBI's announcement they were not going to pursue. Uh, criminal charges on Tuesday, and of course this was his first speech uh, following that news. So he he went so far as to say, I think this was the the most interesting thing he said. He essentially accused Hillary Clinton of bribery. That because uh, according to I think a New York Times report that uh, said that she might be considering uh, keeping on Loretta Lynch as Attorney General, that in exchange for that uh, Hillary was getting off free on the. Um, email uh, scandal-related charges, which I don't know if that's necessarily true or not. There's been a pretty big push among the, the Department of Justice to uh, stress the separation between Loretta Lynch and the people actually making the decisions and uh, doing the investigation on that whole issue. But uh, that was sort of a memorable line. Uh, that really sucked up the, the majority of his speech. And then he had some uh, other uh, things that he said that he's apparently said a lot before, you know, the usual lines about uh, we're going to build the wall, you know, we're going to be winning, you're going to be complaining. Uh, this is one of my favorite Trump riffs is the uh, where the state officials call him after he's the president and they say to him, you know, Mr. Trump, where the people of North Carolina are, are so sick of winning, you've got to stop winning. And then he says, well, Mr. Chief Justice Mark Martin and Lieutenant Governor Forrest, both of whom were, were in the the audience, uh, you know, we're I, I understand your concerns, but we're going to keep on winning. So that was uh, the thing he did. It was, it was interesting to me to see the uh, we were talking about this earlier the um, way the national media sort of fixated on his comment about Saddam Hussein. Uh, he apparently has, has made this this remark before that Saddam Hussein, while he stresses, was a very very bad guy. 
uh, in his words, uh, was apparently also very good at killing terrorists, according to Trump, uh, and that uh, he didn't bother to read in the rights, that he just got it taken care of. And, and now with Saddam gone, Iraq is a Harvard for terrorists, that if you want to become a terrorist, that that's the, the best place you can go. So that seemed to, you know, while it was probably a small fraction of his speech and something he said before, for some reason became the the main media narrative, uh, which a lot of which sort of treated that as a gaffe uh, that would, would negatively impact his campaign that he said that. Uh, we'll see if that's actually the case or not, but that seemed to be the, uh, the big takeaways from the speech for uh, a lot of the folks that were there. Yeah, it's always interesting to see what the national media picks up from these speeches because we're, we're sort of covering it often with an eye toward what he's speaking the most about or what has to do with the news of the day or what has a local... Uh, focus, but uh, I mean, last time he was in Greensboro, he talked about uh, he made some uh, mention about soldiers uh, taking money in Iraq, and it was not completely clear what he was talking about. But the national media kind of picked that one up. But this one was interesting because he said it many times before, and it didn't really seem like there was any anything new. He's he's sort of had this riff about the Harvard of terrorism and and Saddam Hussein uh, uh, having this sort of uh, silver lining of having him, the, the dictator, in power there. Yeah, and that's the sort of surprising thing, because I, I was sort of theory they'd go with the news of the day. The challenge as a local reporter going to cover Trump is that, you know, you're not like the national media where you've sat through every single speech he makes every day of the week. Uh, so it's a little harder for us to parse what is new and what is not in, in what he said, because I um, don't read every single transcript of every speech he gives. I've got a state politics job to take care of but um there are reporters who are in his press corps and do that but it was interesting that they seem to to pick up more on the the iraq thing than than anything else i saw lots of accusations of media bias on that i won't jump into that debate at all but uh it's it's interesting to see how all this stuff gets perceived now you scored an interview with uh donald trump so uh what did he have to say there yeah so this was an interesting one and I've never really understood quite how his press operation works. Um, a lot of times you uh, send them an email with a question and you don't hear back in, in part because I think he does have a significantly smaller staff than Hillary Clinton and a lot of other uh, major campaigns uh, to handle the, the deluge that he's probably getting from the press. Uh, so we put in a request figuring we weren't going to get him. And an hour later that we get a call from uh, one of his press people saying, uh, we're, we're confirming the details of your interview with Mr. Trump. And what ended up happening was uh, before the speech, they pulled us and and uh, three other media outlets, a couple of them local, one of them uh, was Charlotte. I think we were the only print outlet back there to uh, get ready for interviews. We were told we could ask no more than three questions because he was uh, you know, needing to get on stage. At this point, he was actually running late getting on stage. Uh, so I asked him about trying to get him on North Carolina issues about House Bill 2. Uh, asked him if he supported the state's action on that. His response was mostly uh, to the effect that it's a state's issue, that he supports the state's decision to uh, handle the issue as they see fit and necessary. Asked him about our voter ID law here in North Carolina, also very controversial. He says that's a reasonable uh, thing to require. Um, and then I asked him about the importance of, uh, of North Carolina uh, to his campaign, whether it's a must-win state. He stopped short of calling it a must-win state. He wouldn't uh, go so far as to say whether or not he absolutely needs to win North Carolina to win the presidency, uh, but he did say that we're going to see a lot of him, that he loves North Carolina, he's got a lot of friends here, he's got a golf course here that he wanted to tell me about because he is uh, a true businessman, um, and, and that he, he fully expects that he'll, he'll win the state come November. 
Yeah, and I want to ask you guys about kind of what you think uh, the importance of North Carolina uh, will be in the presidential race this fall. It already feels like a uh, uh, like it's fall based on all the visits. But um, set the scene a little bit, Colin. What uh, what was it like there? What did you hear from the crowd? Uh, what was going on out, outside? Uh, what does what a Trump uh, uh, rally uh, like? Yeah, so he's got a very, very uh, active fan base, so much so that uh, the doors for this event were opening at 5 p.m. I talked to the guy who was the first in line. He had gotten there at 5 a.m., uh, so he spent 12 hours in what was a pretty blazingly hot day yesterday uh, so that he could be uh, first to, to get in the, uh, the Trump event. Uh, seems like about half the people that are standing outside all have their Make America Great Again uh, baseball caps on. Uh, there are people selling the the caps and other merchandise, some of it uh, more solidly pro-Trump, some of it kind of uh, crudely and um, offensively anti-Hillary. Uh, there were some, some T-shirts there that were uh, probably not things I should say on a respectable podcast. Um, so all that's going on outside. You get inside and... Uh, you know, this was held in Memorial Hall, a Memorial Auditorium, which is normally a place where traveling Broadway shows come through their concerts. Uh, you don't get that many political rallies here, and, and Trump has generally uh, opted for more arena settings where people can be kind of packed in, standing up. Uh, but even with sort of the uh, the theater seating and the the atmosphere of a uh, of high culture that this this room offered, uh, it was probably a deafening sound when when he hits the stage and everyone cheers. Uh, you've got people shouting out different things. There was a guy behind me who yelled something about he's a monkey when Obama was mentioned. Uh, you've got the protesters who get up and, and yell things out. Um, most memorably, uh, I hear a guy behind me yelling, uh, Trump has small hands, Trump has small hands. Uh, and I turn around and it's the spokesman for the liberal advocacy group Progress NC, who we uh, encounter on a regular basis. Uh, he was uh, getting himself ejected from the, the Trump rally. So you got all that going on. Uh, you know, Trump is up there. He's, but the monkey guy was not ejected. No, no, he was not ejected. And I also heard some somebody yelled something uh, about hanging Hillary Clinton um, that uh, apparently that guy was not ejected either. And um so it's questionable whether Trump can actually hear some of this stuff on stage. People give sure. him uh, give him grief for not uh, sort of shouting down the, the people that um, say this stuff. But I don't know how much he can hear amid the din of the crowd. You know, I'm I'm in the media halfway through the the audience. Um, so that and he speaks for a really long time. I mean, he's I think last night's speech clocked in at like 65 minutes, which is more than you get with a lot of uh, presidential candidates. Uh, there's even a lot of warm up speakers. So it ends up being this like lengthy all evening affair and a, a very uh, charged up crowd in, in general uh, uh, sort of hanging on his every word, even though he's he's not actually reading from a teleprompter or prepared speech. And when he actually reads something that uh, he prepared or was prepared for him, he makes a show of, you know, I'm going to read out this thing and I wrote it. I'm really good at writing. I wrote a book called The Art of the Deal. And uh, so it's uh, it's certainly an experience unlike any other uh, political rally you might go to. Len, you uh, covered both a, a Trump rally in Greensboro, right, and a uh, and a Clinton rally in Raleigh, right. So, yes. uh, uh, what what do you think? Uh, what do you expect out of this fall campaign? Like I said, it already is feeling like uh, October uh, or something here. It's we're only in barely into July, and and it feels like North Carolina is going to be uh, uh, really central. Um, but do you think it's it is going to be as competitive as it as it seems here? Yes, um, I I was just thinking about 
not very long ago when um, North Carolina was flyover country. Now they're here every couple of weeks. So, yeah, I think it's, even though um, Trump doesn't say it, I think it's a, a big prize for whoever can win it. Um, and, um, of course, um, it's, it's highlighted by the fact that Obama made his first appearance with Clinton in Charlotte. Um, and that's, uh, that's the appearance that uh, both Roy Cooper and Deborah Ross decided to go to. So, um, yeah, there are huge stakes. Um, and, you know, North Carolina is right in, right in the center of it. Yeah, they uh, they flew in together on Air Force One, right? And, and went for a barbecue uh, afterwards. Went so, for a barbecue afterward. Yeah, so. And some people on Twitter were uh, dinging uh, the president for uh, ordering uh, brisket, although I, I believe he ordered uh, pulled pork and brisket. So exactly. he's trying yeah. to trying to straddle a little something the, uh, to bring home. Yeah. Right. So, um, well, Will, you listened in to the um, to the Trump rally. Uh, to the Trump speech, rather, and um, you also uh, heard what uh, um, Clinton had to say when she was in Raleigh. Uh, you did a fact check on Clinton's claims about teacher pay, uh, and I think you're uh, researching now for uh, based on what uh, what Trump said here and what what Clinton said in uh, in Charlotte and and uh, President Obama too. So what uh, what stood out from their their claims? Right. Um, lots of claims about the economy, you know, about jobs and, you know, just kind of the, the overall health of, you know, how things are going. Obviously, Clinton is trying to, um, you know, kind of, I guess, piggyback on some of uh, Barack Obama's accomplishments and say, hey, look, things are going great. Uh, you know, we need, you know, the next president needs to continue this. And that's what I'm going to be able to do. Um, you know, she made a claim about, I think, 75 straight months of job growth under Obama. Um, Trump said the opposite because obviously he wants to come in, you know, he's the challenger and he said, you know, we're, we're losing jobs. Um, so, I, you know, I'm looking into both of those claims right now because obviously they can't both be true. You can't be losing jobs and have 70 plus straight months of, uh, of job growth. Um, Trump also spoke a lot about um, specifically uh, the manufacturing industry and how, you know, we've lost uh, jobs to other countries or just to automation in general. Um, and, you know, that's obviously a you know, a line that's going to be a big winner in North Carolina where, you know, there once had been so many manufacturing jobs and we've seen a lot of them go away and not come back in great numbers. So, you know, lots of lots of claims about jobs in the economy I'm looking into. Um, and, it, you know, Governor McCrory wasn't at the Trump rally, but it seems like he must just cringe when he hears uh, Donald Trump. Now, he's talking about the national economy, but he is talking about manufacturing in North Carolina and talking about how bad things are and how dire it is, whereas you hear McCrory making the, the claim that, that, you know, we're on a comeback and things are going great. So it's sort of flipped from the national picture where you have Democrats saying, oh, things are good and, and, and keep, you know, uh, keep going with what we've been doing and uh, Republicans uh, saying things are terrible and, you uh, here it's it's sort of the opposite, where uh, Cooper has to be gloom and doom, I guess, and, and McCrory has to has to say that things are on the right path. Exactly, it's just the politics of it. When you're you know the minority party, things are going bad no matter what. When you're the majority party or in power, things are going great no matter what. But really, I mean, it's important to note that whether you're the governor or the president, you know, you you can have some effect on on job growth and the economy, but not nearly as much credit, good or bad, as politicians often claim. So that's something that is uh, definitely important to note. 
Uh, and you checked what Hillary Clinton had to say about what North Carolina has done about uh, uh, school funding and, and teacher pay, right? Exactly. Uh, yeah, this wasn't from her uh, Tuesday speech in Charlotte. It was actually from the last time she was in North Carolina just last week. Uh, <laughs> as you said, we are getting quite a lot of attention these days. Um, and she said that um, that here in North Carolina, the average teacher can barely support a family just on that teacher's salary and that um, the the Republicans are to blame for that. She cast, cast the blame on uh, Pat McCrory and on the legislature. Um, and we ruled that was mostly false. Um, depending on the size of a family, an average teacher salary can, you know, definitely support it. You know, obviously, you know, bigger families, it's going to get a little bit tighter. Um, and it gets to the point where, you know, if you have three plus kids, then, you know, it's going to be not enough. But the average teacher makes around $48,000. And as we noted earlier, next year, it's going to rise up to $50,000. Um, uh, but really, the uh, I guess the most or the biggest stretch in her statement was to uh, blame McCrory in the legislature because um, I think all but one year that McCrory has been in office, teachers have actually received or yeah received raises or or at least that the uh, the average salary has gone up. Uh, whereas when uh, Bev Perdue, um, you know, a Democrat was in office, um, she actually cut teacher pay one year and even without further cuts, teacher pay continued dropping for various reasons. You know whether or not. You know, local governments were cutting their own supplements or, you know, older, higher paid teachers were retiring. But, you know, for whatever reason, um, teacher pay actually dropped under Democratic rule and has been rising under Republican control. It's still not great. It's in the, you know, we're among the 10 lowest paying states for teachers and, um, you know, not not even doing that well in, in the southeast, which often, you know, gets kind of criticized for its schools and um, so, you know, this isn't to say that things are great for teachers, but uh, they are definitely solidly, you know, middle class, I suppose. And you noted in the fact check, too, that it's not just about uh, Democrats and Republicans, but there was a big recession. And that was a big <laughs> exactly. reason for why teacher pay has gone up and there has been a recovery. And that's a big reason why teacher pay has gone back up. Right. So. Right. It's not that Purdue, you know, cut teacher salaries because she was angry at teachers. It was because there was a massive global recession, depression, and, you know, had to make ends meet somehow. And obviously, the economy has bounced back. So like I was saying before, with, you know, the the economic claims, you know, it's, it's hard to, you know, just put the blame entirely on politicians. A lot of times, it's larger market forces at work. Well, we'll be hearing a lot more about uh, teacher pay uh, on the campaign trail, I have a feeling, after uh, the, the increases during the session. Um, that's it on the presidential campaign. Uh, we'll be right back with headliners of the week. Who is your headliner of the week? Who is your headliner of the week? Who is your headliner of the week? Head, 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 headliner of the week. All right. We're back with uh, Domecast and uh, headliner of the week. Uh, we've got a uh, pinch hitter in for Will Doran here. Craig Jarvis is joining us for Headliners of the Week. And uh, uh, Craig, who's who's your headliner? 
Well, I'm hoping this doesn't uh, uh, jump on jump on or intrude anything we've talked about already. Sorry, I missed the program, but I'm going to go with Chuck McGrady, Representative Chuck McGrady. Uh, he's just had his fingers in a lot of things uh, this session. Of course, he's uh, he's an interesting animal. We've talked about him before. He's a conservative Republican, but he is former national president of the Sierra Club, so it, uh, he's one of the stewards of the environmental legislation. The coal ash bill passed without his input, which was interesting, because he had been working on one for a long time, since the beginning of, the, of this year, uh, and the legislature passed one, which McCrory vetoed, <clears throat> rather than have a showdown with the governor, uh, the governor's office and the Senate came up with their own version, which McCrory did, uh, McGrady didn't like, and he signed, he didn't, uh, he voted against it. Um, so just him for that, for the environmental reasons, and also for, uh, uh, you know, his, uh, his, uh, I just lost my train of thought there. McGrady said that he uh, uh, was able to negotiate the water pollution rules down to a more uh, acceptable uh, proposal for him, right? Uh, so, what did they end up? Uh, what, what did they end up doing on that? Yeah, they had a pretty far-reaching bill that would have basically replaced all the rules, all the regulations protecting watershed around the state, uh, with some as yet unwritten new rules, which is alarmed the environmental organizations. He managed to dial that back. He said, "I threw a lot of sharp elbows in the uh, conference committee report uh, meetings," and um, uh, he really just dialed it back to. Language dealing with Falls Lake and Jordan Lake, and uh, you know, it's still a little unclear on what the next step is. But they threw out, he got rid of one of the crazy proposals, which was to bring in a bunch of freshwater mussels to somehow eat up the algae in Jordan Lake, which seemed to be questionable. Um, another thing on the environmental front is the uh, there was a th- series of three, or maybe if you depends on how you count it, maybe five reg reform bills. Every year they come up, the Republicans kind of have a uh, a feather in their cap coming up with a new set of regulations. They couldn't agree on anything this year and uh, finally gave up. So those uh, uh, those things were uh, probably good if you're an environmentalist or uh, and bad if you're uh, somebody who thinks there's too, many, too much red tape. Mm-hmm. So that's a long way of saying Chuck McGrady, who has the additional ad- advantage of he's probably the most transparent legislator we have. He puts out newsletters that really take you behind the scenes in a way that I don't think we ever have seen before. He disclosed in this one over the weekend that he'd been working on an HB2 bill uh, since the springtime. Um, so it's, he's an interesting character, no doubt. Chuck McGrady, uh, Henderson County Republican, throwing elbows in the, uh, on the, the basketball court of the, of the legislative arena. Uh, Colin, who's your headwi- headliner of the week? Well, I'm going with uh, someone who uh, got a, a primo spot at the Trump rally last night, and that's uh, Lieutenant Governor Dan Forrest. Um, uh, Forrest, uh, as lieutenant governor and running for a, another term, often sort of uh, gets uh, sidelined or sort of overshadowed by some of the uh, the more prominent campaigns. But in this case, uh, U.S. Senator Richard Burr and Governor Pat McCrory have both uh, had uh, other um, – Things on their schedule when Trump happened to be in town for a rally, and uh, while uh, the their Democratic opponents have been eager to hi- uh, appear with Hillary and Charlotte yesterday, they were not there. 
which meant that Dan Forrest was the uh, highest ranking um, Republican uh, official up for re-election that, uh, that came to the Trump rally. The other uh, notable folks there were Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, Mark Barton, who did not speak, uh, as well as Congresswoman Renee Elmers, who is a, a previous endorser of Trump and is no longer in contention for uh, another term since she lost the primary. Uh, so Forrest got up there, spoke uh, about uh, the state's um, low taxes and uh, economic successes uh, and sort of gave brief mention to uh, Trump as the, as he said, the next president of the United States uh, and got some um, prime speaking time in front of an audience of very impassioned uh, Trump supporters uh, at Memorial Auditorium. So I'm going to pick Forrest for my headliner. Okay. Dan Forrest uh, showing up at the Trump rally when others uh, had uh, vacations and uh, and important work to be doing uh, elsewhere. Uh, Lynn, who's your headliner of the week? I'm going to break the mold and pick two headliners. Um, I've got Republican uh, Julia Howard and Democrat Susan Fisher, two House members who uh, took on some powerful forces in the Senate and won. Um, Julia Howard uh, opposed an occupancy tax change that um, the chief budget writer in the Senate uh, wanted, Harry Brown, wanted. She killed that in committee. And uh, Susan Fisher um, opposed, took the lead in opposing a, um, a redistricting of Asheville uh, that Tom Apodaca wanted. And uh, that went down in flames uh, in the House. Um, when those two things happened, I thought I felt the building shudder um, because these are two guys who usually get what they want uh, or most of what they want, mostly because they have the power to write things into the budget. But uh, for uh, two House members um, taking on two powerful senators and winning, uh, those are my two choices for Headliner of the Week. And they had some pretty strong language. Uh, oh, they, they did. Um, there was uh, as uh, some impassioned speeches. Um, and um, some discussion about uh, breaking um, or violating House guidelines or, you know, breaking legislative rules and uh, two arguments that won the day. Well, uh, I like having all these uh, these mountain legislators to choose from here, too. But uh, I think I will go with the, the double headliner and uh, Lynn's suggestion of uh, Julia Howard and uh, Susan Fisher. Uh, that was sort of the the big uh, blow up on the last day of the session, and uh, of course you had lobbyists. Uh, weren't they gasping when the yes, yeah, when yes. the when the vote went down in the House on the uh, the Asheville uh, elections bill? So that was kind of a big deal on the last day. So headliner of the week uh, is shared this week. Uh, Representative Susan Fisher. Uh, of Asheville and uh, Representative Julia Howard of Moxville. Uh, that'll do it for the Domecast. Uh, we won't have a Domecast uh, this Friday coming up, uh, so join us in a week and a half, uh, and uh, we'll have lots more to talk about from uh, the campaign trail and state government. Uh, I'm signing off, and uh, hope everyone has a great week. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to The Domecast, a production of the News and Observer and the Insider State Government News Service. You can keep up with the conversation by reading Under the Dome in the Daily Print Edition or online at newsobserver.com. The Insider is found online at ncinsider.com.